COVID-19 pandemic endures into 2021, there are many things that can be said of this moment, like catastrophic. We might also add revelatory to this list of descriptors. And when I say revelatory, I mean in the sense that in moments of crisis, such as a pandemic, power structures such as racial and economic inequality, inaccessibility to healthcare become immediately transparent. These structures were present prior to, yet become more acute when we, con uh, when we consider the constitution of the good or responsible citizen that we are asked to become in these times. But what constitutes the bad or irresponsible student, sorry, irresponsible citizen, that was a weird Freudian slip. Uh, for example, individuals who ignore lockdown protocols or, travel, uh, or ignore travel restrictions or in recent trends wherein we see elites utilizing their power and privilege to travel and acquire vaccine from regions uh, with vulnerable communities uh, within the context of Canada, this could be uh, folks traveling, uh, traveling to the Northwest Territories or Yukon, uh, or folks uh, traveling to Florida, which we need to break that down in our conversation. But this desire to imagine and constitute the bad citizen is also revelatory because in our actions, an assumed social, con uh, an assumed social contract perhaps one founded on an ethic of care has somehow been breached or disregarded entirely. And so uh, kind of some jumping off uh, to frame the context of this conversation, uh, we should ask ourselves, well, who is empowered to do so in this moment without impunity? Who are these people that we want to imagine as the bad or irresponsible citizen? But also, uh, more importantly, do, uh, do, uh, do crises such as a pandemic prompt us to critically question the social contract that was assumed to encapsulate an ethic of care that is seen as a collective aspiration and practice? And so that's, a, I mean, that's a lot to kind of frame this conversation, but, uh, I also wanted to provide some context in terms of the title uh, in regards to uh, this notion of imagined immunities. Uh, I've been thinking quite a lot about the work of Priscilla Wald, uh, specifically uh, uh, her monograph, uh, Contagious, uh, which is very profound and very apt to think about the ways in which we understand ourselves uh, in relation to a pandemic uh, through storytelling, through communicative means, whether it's media, social media, uh, in our current context. And so, uh, but she also offers this notion of imagined immunities where uh, what she terms the outbreak narrative functions as a means for us to distance ourselves from the contagion, from the crises in some way. And so I wanted to start again uh, for our audience, uh, myself, Benjamin and Ricky are just gonna be having an organic question, uh, sorry, uh, organic conversation but I wanna start with just an open-ended open question. Well, so who is the ethical responsible citizen during a pandemic and how are they constituted within public discourse, especially social media? Uh, okay, um, I guess I can start the conversation. First of all, I, I wanna add um, a sentence for and Christopher and the city for inviting them and myself to be part of this conversation. It's such a such an important conversation to have 
And it's not the only conversation that's been had. Uh, all the last one year has been so full of these kinds of moments of having to really rethink and reimagine how we live and how we exist with one another, you know, what it means to kind of confront crisis. And so I'm glad to be part of this conversation at this moment because I, I, I think that there's so much to be said and so much yet to happen. You know, in, in relation to the question of who or what is the ethical responsible citizen, you know, in, in the midst of a pandemic, I just, I, I wanted to kind of break that question down a bit. Um, first of all, I mean, who is the ethical responsible citizen in any time? And the pandemic is like, a particular kind of historical crisis, but I mean, we need to really think about what it means to also live and exist in other contexts, both outside of the pandemic and the internet. Secondly, I, I guess I want to also kind of question you know, what we mean by ethics and also responsibility and citizenship. I mean, these are that I think require more reflection and deconstruction. You know, one way of answering it might be to think about how we might be able to care for one another. But I think the question of care is so different for different people. And I don't think it's that easy to come to an answer on that. I think it's a lot more complicated than just categorizing citizens as good and bad. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much larger conversation than that. So that's just my initial thoughts about this. I, I'm unmuted. Um, I, I, I think that that's, a really interesting answer, Ricky. I think it's a sort of normative answer to the question in the sense of, you know, it poses more questions than just answers. I, I, I've i been reflecting on, I mean, since the beginning of the pandemic last year, really this emergent um, disciplinary regime that I think is really, you know, under COVID, and I don't think it's unique to COVID, but really is serving to constitute and define who is good and who is bad. Um, and I think you're you're right to to you're absolutely right to trouble precisely what that disciplinary regime is doing, which is neatly carving up and assigning individuals and practices into um, you know universal totalizing categories like good or bad. At the same time, it's happening <laughs> uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, and I mean, the, I think what's really been interesting. I mean. When I first started thinking about this question, because we got sent the questions in advance and I spent a little bit of time puzzling over them. I mean, the first thing that really, really obviously came to me was obviously, you know, since last March, the good coronavirus citizen is the person that stays at home, um, not just social distances and uses masks and regularly washes their hands and sanitizes them. But, you know, that kind of hashtagging citizen led regime of hashtag stay at home um, has really been the driving force of lockdown, um, this kind of new mode of peer surveillance, um, which I've found really, really fascinating. I've not seen anything like it in my lifetime, really. Maybe we could think about HIV prevention campaigns in similar ways, but they don't haven't gone viral in quite the same way that hashtag stay at home has. Um, and also what's been so interesting is the way that hashtag stay at home like really swiftly became coterminous with basically this like practice or exercise of being a domestic god or goddess right like stay at home became something you uploaded to your instagram to show like how good you were at it <laughs> it wasn't just it wasn't just like a, a, an imperative to your like peers it was a kind of like a, a way of bragging you know that you could make banana bread or you could exercise in your living room you could binge watch in the most comforting conditions you could be more creative about your friday night zoom quizzes than anybody else 
Um, so that's been really interesting. And that kind of aestheticized, I don't think that aestheticizing of like good citizenship is at all unique to COVID at all, but um, it's at the same time emerged in a unique way, which is suddenly, you know, being, ha having like comfortable dwellings has become key to public health <laughs> in a way that um, maybe hasn't been before. But what's been really interesting as well, so that was like the kind of the first thing that came to mind. And then I sort of realized there's an there's a internal contradiction to the idea of good coronavirus citizenship, because at the other end of the spectrum of like who is considered to be a good citizen in the time of coronavirus are people who don't stay at home, who do precisely the opposite of staying at home and put themselves in sort of the belly of COVID risk, right? So frontline workers, nurses, doctors, but also people like delivery drivers and people working in coffee shops, people staffing public transport, people who are sort of, you know, cast into the throes of risk in order to keep society functioning. In fact, in many cases, in order to keep everybody else staying at home. Um, and I found that really interesting because there's this kind of internal contradiction there. Well, some people are asked to stay at home, some people are asked to put themselves at risk. And we can see that idea of goodness really coming out in particular in the sort of celebration of frontline workers. You know, the, in the UK, we've had the clap for the NHS. I mean, I just saw, watched some of the clips of the Golden Globes last weekend, and I thought it was so jarring that they had, I don't know if anyone saw it, in the audience of the Gold, Golden Globes, they didn't have celebrities, they had frontline workers, frontline workers who already were exposing themselves to risk. So they, they made a joke about it. They said, you know, thanks for being at the Golden Globes so the celebrities can stay at home, which I just thought was hilarious. But so on the one hand, it was like this attempt to sort of performatively celebrate frontline workers at the same time, sort of, restaging exactly what is so contradictory about good coronavirus citizenship. So I don't know, there's this sort of fascinating contradiction in terms that like some people are, you know, implored by the state to stay at home and some people are state sanctioned risk takers. And both of those fall under the umbrella of good citizenship, which as you say, Ricky is like, just shows how sort of tenuous this umbrella is really because at the end of the day, it's defined by the state and then citizens sort of recapitulate it through hashtagging or whatever, the clap for the NHS every week. Anyway, that was just my thoughts um, as they've developed over time. But it, but it ties into, uh, I mean, one of the other kind of prompting questions uh, that I had had in mind because, uh, and this is more based on how I've been kind of assessing the pandemic over, well, now technically the last year. <laughs> like, uh, this is one anniversary I was not hoping to celebrate. But, <laughs> I, uh, but again, but there's, uh, but this notion of the responsible citizen, and, and as you mentioned, you know, like, so with the Golden Globes, it's like, or just in the way in which frontline workers are understood as heroes, so and so forth, there are so many things that are, that come up for me in these dynamics that suggest to me that we have to have a critical uh, and I would argue an intersectional analysis of power structures, because we know that throughout this year, the people who are primarily doing the work of care are non-white. The people who are then being constituted as being associated with or in approximation to risk or non-white. And yet this is something that does not come up within public discourse. And if it does, it's usually in the most egregious sense, like most egregious moments when you hear frontline workers who, you know, died in hospital, like died in hospital uh, because they're like, and so, yeah, this is the part of the reason why these are kind of more jumping off questions because I'm thinking alongside you. But like the example of the Golden like the example of the Golden Globes was like a perfect kind of like this is a contradictory moment mm -hmm. because it's like we're doing all the celebration of frontline workers, so on and so forth. Well, where was that celebration on February first, two thousand twenty? Like where was that celebration before? And so again, thinking about this question around, you know, the good or the bad, like I'm curious, Ricky, what are your thoughts? I, you know, I, 
I also, for me, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit of an old school, like, Marxist economist, you know, I, I always feel that, like, had all this into the class and how class is always so much a part of like, the conversations that we kind of are having but not explicitly and you know the intersection in class and race especially in, in relation to who gets to stay at home and who doesn't for me at least in, in, in context and I'd be very interested to hear Ben talk about sort of what's been going on in the UK. Like in the context, it's really fascinating that it has always felt like some people have a choice to stay at home and other people don't. Other people are expected, as as you as you put, that these state sanctioned investigators. And expected to go out there to the front lines and work. There's no choice in that. It helps stay at home and, you know, it helps at heads or work from home. It helps, you know, choose not to pay the bills on time. You know, it, there's always this kind of unspoken imperative that requires people to really put their bodies at the line. And that's really not being talked about in ways that I think are, are important, but also I just I feel that then the and it's so interesting to me that I I I I watched some coverage of the Golden Globes on 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 social media, and I was just fascinated by sort of the celebratory nature of it, and wondering who is this for? Like who exactly is this for? Like who? What group of people is this? performance of, of this theater for it's like kind of recuperative and they wanted to celebrate a kind of award show in in the midst of um a kind of you know global crisis and while they were like you know these kind of neoliberal arguments that they made about having to um you know, need opportunities and moments to celebrate and feel happy and that warm and fuzzy and shit like that. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, what it means to sort of take a step back and really think about, you know, what what is the audience for this, is, is like, theatrical, performative gestures. Even on social media, like, even, like, I remember the first couple of months of the pandemic, everyone was a bit in bread. <laughs> I said, like, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> I mean, I was eating a lot of bread, but I wasn't really eating any bread. Um, but I, I, I was just wondering about the kind of the, the constant mediation of these images as people. Trying to make sense of the moment that they find themselves in and trying to showcase how they are surviving, how they're staying at home, how they are making you know, the best of what, what's going on. While also, what you know, for me, like, I'm very, very kind of curious about the kinds of conversations that these performative moments and to cover up, right? Mm -hmm. you know, talk about, you can watch on Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook about people dating black, but you're not really talking about what's happening at the hospitals. You're not really talking about, you know, the bodies piling up. You're not really talking mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, the state is really not supporting its most marginalized populations. 
And so for me, that social media has said, and this is an initial first thought kind of response, it's not fully formed. Social media has kind of participated or allows us to participate in the perpetuation of a very kind of liberal kind of vision of ourselves as a society. And it, it's, it kind of acts, it serves to kind of how it ends up in a bit, a bit. Uh, if that makes sense. It, it does. I think, I think also, if I could jump off from there, I think the other thing that it covers up is that, um, as you say, there's this kind of presumption about when we talk about staying at home, it's an assumption about your living conditions that are being had that you can, as you say, Ricky, like comfortably stay at home. And as such, it's actually one of the, as well as like mounting death tolls, and just, you know, state inaction, you know, lethargy and what have you. The other thing it's covered up is, you know, pre-existing inequalities that structure homes, what homes are like, what it's like to live at home. I mean, one of the, I mean, recently in the UK, there's been all sorts of fraught conversations about lockdown ending. Our lockdown is slowly coming to an end, but for, for many months before that, people were discussing when lockdown should end and, there was all there was always enormous pushback from what I viewed as comfortably off middle class people about sort of unleashing the bodies and the masses back onto the streets again. And for me, I always read those sorts of pushbacks at, about the ending of lockdown, although I understand they're grounded in very real fears and anxieties about the most vulnerable to COVID being re-exposed. And I completely agree with always prioritizing that in any discourse about COVID. What I always felt they were blithe to was the fact that for many people staying at home, if it's not difficult, is sometimes impossible. I mean, if you look up and down this country at the kinds of living conditions the most poor are living in, sometimes they are not just uncomfortable, but they're outright dangerous. If you have a bad landlord, I mean, you could have been inside a flat for an entire year with you know life-threatening damp you could have been living in a situation with a, a partner who was violent you could be living as a trans person in being forced to go back to your family home which was deeply transphobic or if not being forced to go back to your family home being rendered homeless as a result of not being able to, to do that. I mean, we saw this conversation happening last year in the UK at the very beginning when, when we went into the first lockdown for the first month or so, it was pretty quiet and everybody was kind of seemed to be obedient and getting on with it. And then the sun came out. And what happened is that people who didn't have gardens didn't want to be inside when it was sunny. So they went into the parks. And at that point, the government hadn't released any sort of guidance about being outside. There was no intervention from local authorities about how to enable people to be more safely outside together in parks. I mean, there was no idea of carving up space in public parks to enable social distancing. So what ended up happening is that people who lived in townhouses or flats with balconies or whatever with gardens were pointing fingers at people for going into parks. Um, so that for me is the other cover up. This absolutely appalling pre-existing inequality that I mean, when we think about the people who are making the decisions about what people in this country should be doing, we know the kinds of conditions they live in. So for me, there was also always this lack of imagination about how to cater to people and enable people to stay. If you're going to ask people to stay at home, how do we enable people to better stay at home? Um, and if staying at home for some people isn't an option, how do we enable the forms of being in public space that negotiate risk rather than completely uh, turn away from from risk i mean that's a, a more complicated question and mm -hmm. you know in part involves governments um acting faster than they did particularly in the uk one of the issues with the uk government response is they acted far too late and as a result the only option was total lockdown um but there was there for me there was just a profound lack of imagination in that sense about you know, again, if we're thinking about this question of citizenship, finding grey, right? Not a, not the good citizen who stays at home and the bad citizen who sunbathes in the park, but the grey citizen who is enabled to sunbathe in the park for an hour or two a day by a local authority that produced infrastructure to help such a thing happen safely. 
<laughs> and so it sounds like, uh, I mean, before I go on to some other questions, I mean, one of the things that's jumping out for me is that this moment is prompting us also to think about the nuanced ways in which people orient themselves towards risk or how they decide what their proximity to risk will be, which also is about power, ultimately. Like, and so, I mean, ultimately, uh, because there's another question that I'm going to be asking afterwards, but I know uh, as I'm sitting with, I'm, as I'm sitting with the both of you now, I mean, one of the first thing that, things that comes to mind is that uh, you see people are like befuddled because they're just like, I don't understand why you would risk doing X or Y. And that in and of itself could be a panel, <laughs> like in terms of thinking about, because this, uh, because our current situation literally is prompting us to talk about how like risk in and of itself is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Or at least it reveals the dynamics of privilege in the sense that there are some people that don't have the choice to risk. And so the question then becomes, okay, so can we have a critical conversation about who can make, who has the agency to make these sorts of decisions, not just on behalf of themselves, but then ultimately in relation to others. Ricky, do you wanna go or can I jump in there? I mean, I think that's a really fascinating point and so much is thrown up for me there because I, I agree that there is this, for me, my, yeah, really one of the ways I've been understanding and looking at what has been happening during this pandemic, it's particularly in terms of this disciplinary regime where on the one hand, some people are heralded and other people are shamed and named and blamed. And it's always individuals that are named and blamed and shamed. And so rarely is it states and policies so rarely is it policies. It is, you might be an individual from a state, but it rarely is a policy or an enabling policy. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking about within that regime, this is particularly this idea of agency, right? So some people have it and some people don't, <laughs> particularly in relation to risk. And what, the, for me, the better way of understanding instead of understanding actions or practices in terms of good or bad, is instead to understand where agency is suppressed and diminished. For instance, for people of color, for the poor, for sex workers, for people who don't have choices but to put themselves in the proximity of risk, versus where agency is exploited, where people who are afforded the luxury of, for instance, domestic ease, financial privilege, and so on, have choices to make to keep other people who are more vulnerable themselves safer and potentially can be understood to flout those choices mm -hmm. um, and even within that so then then we end up with this sort of narrower understanding of you know where agency is exploited and even within that we still have to have critical conversations then about what enables people to exploit agency. So I'm thinking, for instance, about things like that we haven't spoken about much during this pandemic and that need to be spoken about more, travel loopholes. I mean, travel loopholes where we see disproportionately white middle-class people traveling to disproportionately non-white working-class areas to holiday. Um, and there is a question, again, about pre-existing structures, about why it is that certain regions become so dependent on white tourism um, but also why this pandemic didn't lead to more critical conversations about, you know, um, I don't know, mediating there and, 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 and not allowing these tourist uh, highways to become high pathways of risk that disproportionately expose non-white working class people to risk. So that to me is part of that conversation about the exploitation of agency. It just, it cannot be always about locating blame at the end of a pointed finger at a single individual or even a select group of individuals. It can definitely be about holding individuals accountable, but there always has to be, I mean, for me, the issue there is that then the lasting lessons of this pandemic end with chastising a handful of individuals rather than better securing 
policy um, and state infrastructure that will prevent these kinds of equalities from being exacerbated again. Um, that's the first big thing. And the second big thing that we haven't mentioned yet, but you know, undergirds all of this is that, I mean, uh, the, frankly, most people's orientation and most states' orientation to this pandemic has been fundamentally ableist. Um, and ableism is a word that I do not see discussed nearly enough in relation to COVID-19. Um, in fact, I've been deeply, and I have, I'm going to get this on public record now, I've been deeply frustrated by, uh, particularly in, the recent, in recent months, this kind of flippant exercise in comparison between COVID-19 as a pandemic and HIV-AIDS as a pandemic. And very often there's this exercise in comparison that happens where people sort of highlight COVID-19 as this example of spectacular privilege, where um, nations went into lockdown and responded really, really quickly, unlike in the HIV AIDS pandemic, where, of course, we saw Haitians, homosexuals, hemophiliacs and people who injected drugs neglected by state, you know, states for decades, well, not decades, sorry, years. Um, and I find that exercise in comparison, frankly, insulting to um, the clinically vulnerable, to older people living in states where they feel state response has been completely blithe to them, um, where they feel, for instance, after the initial locking down that we've seen in states in the US or in the UK or elsewhere, a reopening up that re-exposed them to risk. Um, and equally within individual approaches to the pandemic, as we, when we're talking about why is it that individuals exploit their agency? Because there is a fundamental disregard for the disabled people that they cannot see that are simply invisible to them um, and you know through the logic of ableism are seen as less than and are seen as expendable and for me nowhere was this better exemplified than in the UK government's initial response to the pandemic uh, I don't know if you remember but Boris Johnson's government announced before we went into lockdown or was it in the very early weeks of lockdown that we didn't have to worry about Covid because we were going to acquire as a, a country herd immunity and it was very, very quick that people recognized that within the idea of herd immunity was a eugenic ideology, right? It was just pure eugenics that the most vulnerable to COVID were entirely disposable. Um, and sadly, after over 100,000 people have died in the UK, I mean, we've seen that that has been borne out because those people are disproportionately older, they're disproportionately clinically vulnerable. So anyway, ableism, uh, you know, th there is, there, there is, and there has been what I have been saying is a genocide by neglect of the disabled and the vulnerable in, in, in every country with a, with a COVID-19 problem. Um, and again, this is going to undergird questions and discussions about good and bad citizenship and good and bad practice. You know, the point about ableism is so, so important on so many different levels in the sense that, you know, Another way in which I have seen it kind of appear is in the context of something like COVID, you know, this, this phrase that gets mobilized around COVID to eat around, you know, and I, I, I want to dismiss the fact that the pandemic has been emotionally and absolutely difficult for so many people. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an eldest, I see this in my practice, and I see how emotionally and psychically uh, it's just had an impact on the lives of people. And it's a, it's a, it's a sudden dramatic event in the, in the history of our world. In a one, one moment, uh, that our lives changed overnight. That being said, you know, I also come at, I've also come at this pandemic as a person with a disability, a very visible physical disability, and I'm often, you know, and as a person of color, like, you know, moving through the world, I know, you know, one of the first things that happened in, ha often happens to me when I leave my home, it's just how people interact with my body, you know, like how people look at me in a particular way, because I'm, first of all, I'm not, a, not white and the person of power, but I also have a visible disability that makes people question my 
know, my motives, because <laughs> I'm suspicious. I, 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 I'm in a body that allows a suspicion. And on top of that, at, um, the, the pandemic has kind of compounded this feeling of suspicion in how I move through the world, how I experience the world. And so it's a really interesting to kind of really think about what it means to, you know, feel fatigued, you know, while or claim to feel fatigued, then a state of fatigue is how a lot of people always already live their lives. That, that they don't have a chance to not be exhausted. They don't have a chance to feel a sense of rest. They're constantly having to always be alert as racialized people, as poor people, as, you know, it say that people as people of the margins, there is no sense of having to navigate and overcome our sense of fatigue. The fatigue is very much a condition of life. And so then I often hear this notion of the oh, and and it's physical to eat. I empathize with it, I, I really do. But I also like to think about what it means to also then be experiencing this as a person of color, as a person with a disability, as a person who might not have many options to overcome feelings of in relation to this moment. Um, and so I think that the point about ableism is so, so significant and I think it really, really needs to be kind of vocalized more and more in these, in these conversations because I don't think it actually gets highlighted in the way that it should be. Because, because questions around mobility, like questions around mobility are deeply tied to the idea of who's being irresponsible. And so from the very get-go, the ability to move, the ability to go to a circuit party or go to an underground beach party, like, like some of the events that had happened in Toronto while we were supposed to be transitioning from lockdown or transitioning from stage one, two, three, or whatever. Um, but this idea that like there's already an inherent privilege in saying, well, I've got COVID fatigue, I now need release, so I'm going to breach these particular rules because I have the privilege of mobility. I have the privilege, whether it's financial or just uh, the privilege of one's own physicality to be able to, again, engage in these things to rect, uh, to kind of uh, remedy the quote unquote fatigue that is always already inherently ableist. Also, if I can add, I think it's completely, I think it's absolutely fascinating to, to highlight and talk about the affect of the pandemic, because in, particularly when I think about I mean, so I should say my partner is ex clinically extremely vulnerable. So I have really lived this pandemic. I mean, we were shielding from the virus for four to five months, which meant no outside access. Um, but really, I've, you know, this, you know, we, you talked about this pandemic being a sort of revelatory experience. It's been a very revelatory experience in terms of really learning um, through and alongside him what it really has meant to be. Um, disabled during this pandemic. I can't say that I am, but I obviously am witnessing, uh, paying witness to what's happening. Um, and one thing I've noticed through talking with him and being alongside him throughout this entire experience um, is the disproportionate burden of fear that he has had to shoulder and that his mother, who is also clinically extremely vulnerable, has had to shoulder and other people in their situations and positionalities have had to shoulder. And so again, when we talk about relief and reprieve and whatever, and all these, you know, the, the trying to seek out pleasurable affects as a way to remedy the negative ones, again, I see the privilege there because it's a privilege to be able to expose oneself to those situations without fear, um, without much fear. You know, there's this 
I think one of the sort of grounding epistemologies of the pandemic since the beginning for many able-bodied people, or at least many privileged able-bodied people, has been that COVID is just a cold that kills other people. Um, and that really, I think, has stayed with people for a very long time and for them has been solidified as they see their friends become COVID positive and recover. Um, and they see their friends brandishing their antibodies as an excuse or a reason to go and do certain things. These are not, I, I'm not necessarily passing judgment on that. I'm just suggesting that these are all practices that re-solidify for able-bodied people that COVID is something that kills other people. Whereas for my partner, witnessing those things gives him no relief. It gives him no reprieve because he's still, as you say, Ricky, there's this question about like, what will this do to my body? Uh, and those are questions and those are questions that he does not want to answer and he does not want an answer to right now he's vaccinated. So, you know, hopefully we'll never have to answer that question. But yeah, so th I think that's, um, you know, again, that that epistemology, that idea that COVID is a virus that kills other people, a cold that kills other people, that's an ableist logic as well. Um, and then and, and one that we have to always bear in mind and challenge. Yeah, I think there's so much about kind of what it means to actually, you know, going back to something you said then about that it's not about blaming people, but actually holding people to a sense of accountability. And not just a sense of accountability to others, but to themselves, actually. I, I just said about what it means for, you know, us, and I use us in quotation marks, it's not thinking about others. What, you know, it's just, you know, I, I, I go back to that kind of article that ultimately really came out in, in a financial post, I think, that at the early part of the, the pandemic, um, I think it's just called the pandemic. Is a portal, and it really is a kind of portal or a, a kind of experience that has brought so much to the surface in how we are really or we have been unprepared to deal with crisis in ways that would actually consider the welfare of others. Of our being of others, and it's it's an amazing witness. Even now, that you know, as vaccines are being rolled out, just how people are trying to you know jump the queue, whatever that means. That it means so many different things for so many different people, or. Um, the forms of vaccine nationalism that's happening, where certain countries are holding vaccines in ways that limit access to those same vaccines by poor countries. So countries that don't expect to be vaccinated for a couple of years. And so it's just really interesting to kind of think about this highly um, sort of complicated way in which people are dealing with, I think, fundamentally their own anxieties, but in ways that potentially put others in, in the way of harm. Does that make sense? No, per uh, perfect sense. And it get uh sorry it's getting it's it's getting to me uh, getting me to think quite literally around uh because we've had events uh i mean there was an entire series uh uh shortly after uh, at the begin uh shortly after the beginning of the pandemic uh where we had a set of uh sessions on the ethics of covid at the center for ethics and as i was conceiving this event I was like, will this be kind of like a post-mortem kind of event where it's like, well, now we're after the, like we're at the tail end of the pandemic when clearly as you've highlighted that 
this is now going to be a structuring kind of reality because there's going to be clearly inequalities in terms of how one gets quote unquote to the finish line. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know if that was like an invitation for like a response from either of you, but that was something that was coming through my mind because again, this question, because this question around fatigue, this question around wanting something to be over, well, clearly we have two or multiple sets of trajectories that are not in alignment with each other, which in and of itself is also a kind of uh, something that we need to consider in terms of how we reevaluate how we decide to go forward. I think um, this is making me remember another thing that I've been thinking over the past year, which is precisely that statement when this is over, um, you know, became particularly in the, I think the mid moments of the pandemic, but also in the first lockdown, under the first lockdown, um, you know, was this kind of desperate hope for something different, for something to be over. And I think it's become clearer than ever that one of the problems of the statement when this is over is that the, the belief of in that statement, the belief couched within that statement is that the this of when this is over is, is the virus right, uh, that when this is over means when COVID is gone, when the virus disappears. Um, but that is deeply technologically determinist because, you know, that puts all this emphasis on vaccines and this kind of curative um, approach to COVID like within your national context. When actually what we should have been talking about all along, and I think this whole conversation has highlighted, um, it, are those structuring inequalities that allow pandemic and the, the pandemic to unfold in the particular ways that it unfolds. So really the this of when this is over should have been all those structuring principles that you know, lead to disproportionate exposure for people of color and the working class and the clinically vulnerable and so on and so forth. And that, as Ricky has already highlighted, are gonna continue to structure risk on a transnational level um, even after countries like the UK are completely vaccinated and have closed their borders. Um, and that, yeah, that's something, I mean, if we, we want to reflect on comparisons to HIV AIDS pandemic, there is a perfect example. I mean, you have a whole generation of white middle-class gay men who talk about AIDS as if it was a thing of the past, who sometimes talk about HIV as if it was a thing of the past, when actually continuing inequalities continue to structure the realities of that virus for many people within the US and the UK and Europe, and also of death by AIDS related illness, um, you know, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and the global south. So these questions are urgent and will be ongoing because COVID isn't, this is not me being a doomsayer, COVID isn't going away, which doesn't mean that we will be continuing to live in conditions of lockdown forever and ever and ever, but it does mean we have to urgently address the things that put certain people in harm's way. I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm very, I'm very critical of the idea that there is some kind of afterlife to this. I think this is going to be a condition of life that I think we need to contend with. I, we have always condemned it, actually. Viruses, illness is a part of how um, we experience the world. And this will be yet another condition that will inform how we will make choices, both at a very local, individual, community level and at a global transnational level. And I get very sort of, sort of anxious, I suppose, when we think about, you know, post-COVID, the notion of what it's going to be like afterwards, then in reality, I think we need to really think about this as a, a real defining moment. Not unlike defining moments in the past, but a moment of really kind of rethink what it means to live 
in communities a while, especially in the Alliance for a long time. And that the emulate, whether they like it or not. Um, and I mean, and I, I, I feel that the idea of what the end looks like is so subjective. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost um, inequitable to imagine an end that doesn't account for all people and all kinds of people. Um, but that's also not how we're thinking right now. I and mean, we're thinking in ways that are highly individualistic, highly nationalistic, highly you know, um, invested in capital, you know, who can access vaccines at what costs. Um, we're not in, in, in a global socialized way. I've always been, from the very beginning, I've been saying we need to be dealing with this in a global, in a socialized way. That's how you, a wireless is a socialist at some level. A wireless does <laughs> not know any borders. Mm-hmm. A wireless does not know <laughs> any, and it doesn't care about our borders, our states, and we need to actually think in that manner. We need to actually think in a manner that actually accounts for the global effort, which we have not done, which mm-hmm. in that I would say we have failed at. Um, but failure does not mean that it's the end of that conversation. I think there's still time, there's still opportunities for a globalized effort. I just hope that we are able to do that, even if it's in our small communities. I want, uh, so uh, to, uh, to the audience, uh, if you have any questions for uh, one or all of us, uh, please enter them in the chat on YouTube. Uh, we're not done yet, but I just want to let you know uh, that we will be having a Q&A shortly after we wrap up uh, uh, this lovely discussion and then uh, responding to questions. So. Uh, enter any questions and enter lots of them. Uh, One of the things that, uh, and I think this is part of the reason why myself and Vasuki were inspired to kind of have this conversation with you or create uh, create this event, is that uh, this question around around how COVID relates so deeply with questions of matters of affect and the strategies that we use. So this idea of the good citizen, the bad citizen, so on and so forth. One of the things that I, if there was anything that I would say I would get, that would give me fatigue would be the numerous postings on my Facebook shaming people who have like uh, breached some sort of social protocol and the first thing that I thought to myself was, but is any of this doing anything? Like, does like does this action of shaming in and of itself do anything to change the situation? Or is this an action that people are doing for themselves? And what does that mean? And so, uh, I mean, the, like one of the last questions uh, that I had for you was like, well, how can we think about affect differently? Because clearly, and part of what informs this question was around uh, thinking through what Robin Wigman talks about, or kind of, I guess, diagnosis is that we're living in an outrage culture. And so social media has provided this outlet where we outraged about everything, but we're not doing anything necessarily. Like, Outrage is necessary. Outrage is catharsis, yes, but but what are we doing after the outrage? And so it, I guess the question is, is it enough for us to even engage with this construction of someone who is uh, 
not cognizant that their uh, actions have consequences and that they should be held accountable? Or are there different, I guess the question might be, are there different ways to hold someone accountable that does not require shaming? I suppose for me that it goes out of the question who is someone is, right? Uh, for example, um, there's this, uh, I'm sure lots of people have heard about this, but there is this uh, Instagram account called Days of the COVID uh, that has made it its mission to out and dox you know, gay men who believe protocol when it comes to travel and when it comes to the pandemic. And, you know, for me, like, I've been fascinated by this, this account for a while that it is so strange and so, I mean, it's so problematic on so many different levels, but I, what I've been fascinated by is that particularly men, it's kind of a low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's a bit of a low-hanging fruit, especially when travel is happen has been happening throughout this pandemic. They're not putting you know, families who want to open for Thanksgiving and the holidays, which is fine, I mean, people can do what they want to an extent, I suppose. But I just feel that it's really interesting that you kind of pick on a group of men who have historically been understood as narcissistic, hedonistic, only focused on their insatiable pleasure, that is kind of creating this construction of the, the, the homosexual who is selfish and narcissistic is such a such a low-hanging fruit in my opinion and it's so just it, it's so ridiculous at some level so i i always have to ask like, who is it that we are trying to put in when we put in folks who believe whatever that means, social protocols around pandemic, because I don't think that all bodies are necessarily looked upon in the same way. Everybody is different and every community is being viewed as in a particular way. And I think it's really important to be nuanced about that because I feel that what happens is certain communities are so easy to put in because they have always historically been put in that we don't really look at what is happening in the larger context. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm still unsure if shame is a way to put up the last act. Personally, I was shaming. I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, As a productive effort? Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sure about it personally. I, I'm not. It made, it, it made something act by shaming them. I wonder about that. I, I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong, but I don't know if it's necessarily right. Mm -hmm. And I, it's important to think more about that. Um, yeah. I think. Um... I just want to jump in about the gays over COVID thing, because I think what's also fascinating is, you know, again, let's, we can do the comparisons with HIV AIDS histories. The people, as you, you know, you're absolutely right. that Like <laughs> it's a low hanging fruit in the sense that, you know, it's the same demons are being exercised as were at the beginning of HIV AIDS pandemic. Um, the difference is who is predominantly doing the shaming now? I mean, at the beginning of HIV AIDS pandemic, you of course had your moralizing queers that were doing that work, but really it was tabloid media and very socially conservative forces, as well as potentially the socially conservative forces embedded in the medical establishment. Now you have liberal, progressively minded gay men 
who are doing this exercise of shaming. And I, I think this is a really fascinating moment to, I mean, so Stephen Epstein has written about this idea of biosexual citizenship, which I think, you know, uh, so th this is the idea that, you know, the, the imperatives of biological citizenship have become absolutely intimately entangled with the, uh, the rights and freedoms of sexual citizenship, particularly for gay men. So there's this way in which like contemporary gay identity is now n not legible unless it's understood in reference to biological citizenship. You cannot understand what it is to be a gay man in the 21st century, or particularly in the West, if it's not in relation to sort of good sexual health practice. And so is it any wonder then that like this new pandemic comes along and gay men who are like utterly responsibilized um, become the sort of forebearers of this exercise of essentially what is shaming, um, or we could view it as, you know, this part of this disciplinary regime of, you know, biosexual citizenship. And in fact, it, it is still a, embedded in this circuitry of biosexual citizenship, because all of the gays over COVID shaming has to do with party cultures and cultures of sex and sex on drugs and so on and so forth. So it's, it's deeply and intimately sexual in that nature and sexualized. Um, so I find that fascinating. And I think it's interesting because like, I think maybe a year ago, two years ago, this conversation about biosexual citizenship could have been easily written off as a sort of, you know, a description rather than a critique. And now I think within this pandemic, it's really, to me, emerges as a critique, right? It's, it is this sense of, I don't think there should be this much of a, of, uh, of a, Again, you know, I don't think biosexual citizenship, I don't think biological citizenship and sexual freedom should be as coterminous as they are in, in, for us anyway. Um, and then this question of shame, um, I also have been puzzling through it because I think, you know, there is, although shame, I think shame feels good. It feels good to shame somebody. And we've probably all been shamed in our lives and maybe corrected ourselves as a result. So we all maybe have kind of an anecdotal sense that shame works. I certainly have had experiences where I've been shamed or embarrassed, embarrassed maybe is a better word. And I have corrected myself and I've never made that mistake again. So I have this anecdotal sense that it works, but no, no empirical evidence or data or survey or analysis or um, study has proofs that, that shame works on a large scale. I mean, all of the, the, the HIV prevention literature, all of the, the information about the, the data about smoking, about bad habits and whatever, you know, the medical establishment wants to encourage people not to do, all of it just shows that shame on a large scale doesn't work. It provokes really unsustainable practices where people end up in really, really toxic relationships to the thing they're supposed to be issuing, or it leads to denial at least a defensiveness. And I think in the in most cases, particularly in relation to this COVID practice, it just leads to secrecy. I mean, I, I know firsthand people that I've had encouraging and correct, let's say corrective conversations with about things they've been doing during lockdown. I wouldn't say I was shaming them. I was just asking questions and having a conversation and they've left the conversation saying, oh yeah, maybe I won't do that again. And then, you know, I, I know that all they've done because they've not been sharp enough about it is shift their Instagram story from public to close friends. So um, there's this sense in which, again, like even though we have this anecdotal sense, this like very reactive sense that shame works because it feels good and because maybe we have a sense that it's worked for us, I don't think that's borne out in a sort of like in a mass way. Um, so yeah, then, then there, there are these questions about what other affects might work. And everything I've come up with has just been, I don't know, far too optimistic because I want to believe that love and care and solidarity, particularly as a redress to these problems of ableism, could possibly be something that binds us together. I mean, I mean that we know, I mean, you've, if scholars like Sarah Ahmed have written that love is a love and um, sort of those happy affects are very, very effective in relation to nationalism and people rallying around the nation state. And in fact, when we think about, I mean, in the UK, any effort to sort of get the people to rally around the cause of COVID has been in that sort of jingoistic language of love 
you know, care for the nation. Um, but maybe the maybe the 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 imperative should be to shift the focus of care from maybe the, the locus of care should not be for the nation, but for people who are more vulnerable than you. Maybe that's too optimistic because I've, as Ricky's already said, this is these are individualistic times. Um, and we're dealing with the roots of individualism that are so, so deep. I don't know if they could possibly be flung up during a pandemic in order to encourage better practice. But if we're looking for alternatives, I think that might be the one, maybe. I, I want to add a small point about the you know, it's so interesting that what's happening right now around so it's outrage that Christopher was talking about. A lot of the outrage is also public outrage and sort of happening on public spheres, like social media platforms like Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, um, and there's a really rich kind of facelessness to this. There's a kind of anonymity to this that allows this kind of public affect to be produced and, and reproduced and repeated and replicated. This is very different than what you know Ben was talking about, which is the private conversations that you have, the confidential conversations that you have with friends or family or even people you might know on social media around thinking about the kinds of choices that the collectively make. It's not just about me calling someone out and that shaming them, but it's about trying to reflect on what it means to make choices that at the end of the day have a way in which it reflects a kind of interdependency. Uh, you know, I, I depend on you and you depend on me. Um, as a way to kind of collectively care for each other that there's not really, like, I think publicly kind of calling people out or saving them oftentimes acts in the opposite way <laughs> in some level, right? I think also that goes back to this question of accountability, right? Like, because one of the questions that, you know, when, you know, this has been this move from cancel culture to accountability culture. There's been this attempt to shift the discourse. And one of the questions that's always posed is, well, accountable to whom? I mean, why, why should you be accountable to a stranger on the internet? That's a, a, a very reasonable question that, that somebody, you know, might ask if they were being asked to hold themselves accountable to a Twitter user, for instance. So I think, Ricky, you're absolutely right. Like that, these that we these intimate conversations happening between friends or at least acquaintances are a better site and a better scene for accountability. In fact, I have long been of the belief that a very good definition of friendship is somebody who will hold you accountable. Right? What is other things? But a central aspect of friendship is you don't support somebody. Um, you know. Uh, no matter what, you hold them accountable and you try to make them better uh, in whatever way that makes sense for in your sort of cosmology of your friendship. So maybe, you know, if we want to end on a, a note of optimism, we all need to be better friends uh, and not just better friends in terms of closeness and getting to know each other, but better relationships in terms of the way that we communicate with one another. Maybe that's the way that we get through the next pandemic.